Welcome to the Farmers Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast, looking at ways to secure a more sustainable future for your farm business. I'm your host, Johan Tasker, and in this episode, we're discussing food security and the need to balance profitable food production with care for the environment. Joining me to discuss ways we can get this balance right are three special guests. Carl Atkin, Chairman of the Institute of Agricultural Management, Emily Norton, Head of Rural Research for Savills, and Phil Jarvis, Chairman of Farming and the Environment for Albanwise Farming Limited. Carl Atkin, we'll start with you. How can we get this balance right between profitable food production and care for the environment? Uh, Well, Johan, I think for me, it all comes back to the kind of governance and framework of how we manage land. Uh, And if we think about agricultural policy in certainly the second half of the 20th century, it was almost entirely about the production of food, right, in certainly most developed uh, markets. Um, And I guess there's been an appreciation over the last couple of decades, at least, that actually land's more complicated, right? We expect it to produce food, but it also produces biodiversity, it produces carbon sequestration, sequestration capacity, it produces other public goods. Um, And I think we're trying to unpick how we integrate all of these different aspects into the governance of land use. We also have this added problem, of course, that land use governance is incredibly micro. So it happens either at a regional level or at a nation state level. um, And we're not looking at it holistically, whereas, of course, the solutions and and issues around the global environmental and food challenges uh, need us to look at land use in a more holistic context. Many demands then placed on farmers, not just food production, but things like climate change mitigation and, and looking after the environment as well. Phil Jarvis from Albanwise. Albanwise is a, a big farming business. You farm more than 10,000 hectares in Norfolk and in Yorkshire. How are you striving to achieve this balance in, in what you do at Albanwise? Well, obviously, food is an important part of our business, as as is, is energy as well. But I think uh, specifically uh, looking at a growing environmental situation that we've got here, there are a number of ways we can do it. So we're using stewardship to look after habitat. You know, there are a number of uh, things that are already there around things like water protection. Also, you know, woodland management as well, you know, woodland carbon codes. So our business, you know, has a lot of land which isn't is suitable for, for that as well. And, and we've got things on the horizon like uh, soil management under uh, the SFI. You've also got a, a developing carbon market, uh, you know, the use of organic manures. There's a whole host of things that, that we can do as a big farming business to try and get that balance between food production and responsible environmental land management. Emily Norton from Savills, uh, is that true for the wider farming sector? It's not just the big boys, as it were, but it's, it's, it's something that we can all do as an industry? I think actually the key questions here, Johan, come down to um, pretty big level policy conversations around what those targets really mean. Um, So at at government level, it's really important that government is looking at the full picture of different farming businesses across the whole industry and is making sure that the policies that are being created are accessible for all of them. So I've spent the last nine months on the tenancy working group, working with Baroness Kate Rock, looking at how some of these public schemes to support the environment aren't really working with uh, tenanted land, which for a business like Savills is a really big issue because an awful lot of our business is to do with uh, the relationship between landlords and tenants. So if the public policy isn't supporting 
um, tenanted business to meet these twin objectives of environment and food security, then a lot of smaller farmers in particular are going to be penalised in this new future. Carl Atkin, these are things that are driven largely by policy and uh, where we are at the moment in terms of agricultural policy, we're in a, a in a period of huge change. How can farmers make sense of that? Look, we've had an unfortunate few months, right, where there's been a lot of, um, shall we say, turmoil in our domestic political system, perhaps a bit politely, which has created all sorts of noise around what may or may not happen. I mean, I, I fundamentally believe, you know, the the direction of, of post-Brexit farm support is the right one, public money for public goods. I don't think anyone would argue with that as a, as a principle. Um, I guess it's been unfortunate that I think, you know, we've had, I think, what, four prime ministers and five secretaries of state at DEFRA since Elms was announced. You know, so it's been through many kind of stop, start, stop, start um, iterations. Um, I guess it was inevitable that um, in the sort of um, taking, you know, Michael Gove's big vision and distilling it down into a scheme, there was always going to be some compromise. If I'm honest, I'm a little disappointed with the ambition of Elms. I think it's going to end up being a lot more box ticking, you know, sort of countryside stewardship mark three rather than, than, than something perhaps as transformational as Michael had said. But I think, you know, what, what can farmers do to make sense of it? Well, in very simple terms, they've got to keep grasping the opportunities as they come towards them. So, you know, SFI, I think for, for most farmers, you know, ought to be a no brainer, right? I think it's, it's, it's the entry into the scheme. Um, you know, landscape recovery, I think um, there's been a lot of chit chat in the press about are small and medium sized farmers going to be able to access this money or is it going to get hoovered up by larger, larger landowners? I would say I think that's misguided. I think, you know, farmers need to be proactive uh, and get involved in initiatives around that. Um, I guess the tricky bit is the local nature recovery, because that's going to be the bulk of it for most people, right? The sort of stewardship replacement. And we've got least visibility about that at the moment. But I think, you know, keep in stewardship, keep that keep that kind of direction of travel going. And hopefully, you know, some more detail on, on, on the mid-tier, if you like, the scheme will become clear in due course. Phil Jarvis from Albanwise. People talk about public money for public goods. How much of what you do is driven by policy and public money? And how much of it is driven by the market, uh, private money, essentially? Well, private money is becoming increasingly more important simply because I just pick up one of the things that Emily said about policy going forward. You know, if we don't get clear direction from our politicians and our leadership and globally from governments as well, it's very difficult, whether it be on renewable energy, whether it be on uh, natural capital, the way forward. If we chop and change and say, well, we're not sure, if it gets a bit tough economically, then we'll step back a bit. This this climate change, this crisis is not going to go away whilst we're trying to find out who pays for it. So I think there's a blend that, you know, businesses like ours, if we don't get clear steer from government or policy going forward, then we'll look more increasingly to private finance because it takes you away from uh, confused thinking, you know, uh, changing from one minute to the next, whereas you can actually get on and do something if someone's willing to pay you for getting on with it. So we need much better, much clearer leadership from whatever team uh, is at DEFRA. And I think they're hamstrung a lot by the political situation, but we do need good government and good leadership. And Phil, what sort of things are you doing at Auburnwise? I mean, can you give some sort of practical examples? I think you've got some agroforestry going going on. You've got, uh, you're using more organic manure, as you said earlier. Yeah, well, you know, we're, you know, core to our business is looking after our soils. So making sure that we're, we're getting efficient crop production, but we are using 
uh, more organic matter, trying to reduce cultivations where appropriate, uh, you know, agroforestry, uh, wetlands uh, that we've got on certain areas are applicable, you know, more woodland planting, uh, trying to find the right landscape management for the, lo- the right type of a soil type. You know, not every practice is, is right. So it's the, it's the right practice in the right place, really. So there are a number of things we're doing to try and blend the more efficient land producing food and perhaps uh, sort of the better quality land producing food and perhaps some of the marginal land going into other things. So you're not afraid where necessary to take a bit of land out of food production and use it for environmental benefits? Well, well it's always, always a balance. You know, if your land has potential, it would strike you as, as being good to produce food on it. You know, where you might be restricted by water uh, or you might be restricted by, you know, slope or basically the quality of, of the landscape, then, you know, it would seem to make sense to put it into something else. You know, there are some areas where these things clash, uh, where you've got good soils, but they might be prone to flooding. Uh, so there's always a balance. Uh, and I think it's picking the right ones so that you spread the risk in your business, you know, produce food where you can, and then, uh, uh, you know, environmental and uh, natural capital where you can in other places. Emily Norton, the crisis is here to stay, the cost of living crisis, at least uh, at least for the time being. There, there is this uncertainty around agricultural policy going forward farming though is a, is a long-term business how do, how do we get that right so I mean, what are you advising your clients in terms of what should they be looking at because it's very difficult to to make these long-term decisions when we don't know what's just around the corner the, the key challenge is always having that that long-term view and actually in many ways it makes the short-term noise easier to ignore um this idea that sort of sustainability is something new uh, for a lot of our farming businesses is, is a bit silly, really. You know, multi-generational family-run businesses are always thinking about the next generation. And I think uh, having the confidence to make those long-term investments, you do need a number of factors to come together. But they can be personal. They can also be to do with the business environment in general. So uh, it's not just policy that's got a role to play there. I think there's a really important role that supply chains have to play there. And I think that's some of the maturity that our whole food production system is going to have to now step into when that basic payment scheme money goes and you're not getting that liquidity year to year, what is going to be there to uh, ensure that farmers continue to produce. So Phil was talking about this incredibly rational decision to sort of, you know, stop thinking about farming to the edges because the basic payment scheme effectively paid you to farm to the edges. Well, if that has gone and we're not being paid to farm to the edges anymore, you start to make very different decisions about the type of uh, landscape that you've got, the type of infrastructure that you've got, the type of soil quality and all of those other different topographical factors around what the actual farm looks like and start to make different decisions. But similarly, you know, if you're, if you've got to be committed to producing food. So, um, where are we now sort of starting to see supply chains offering longer term contracts, not just better pricing? But I think that is the issue with the cost of living crisis. It's not about the cost of food going up. It is about being able to make better long term decisions around investing in food production. And some of that is going to come from supply chains just accepting that they need to take on more risk in production. Like I said, that might just be through, for example, longer contract terms. Lost in the funding options beyond BPS? Wondering how you can reduce your carbon footprint? Can trees benefit you? Till Hill can show you that by planting the right tree in the right place, you, your family 
and generations to come can continue to farm with the benefit of trees. And the right time to plant trees is now. Trees can bring you a better income on those areas of your farm that just won't give you the very best harvest or feed for your livestock. Between Woodland Carbon and the New England Woodland Creation Offer, the financial reward has never been so great. Whether you farm for beef, dairy, sheep or arable, trees can offer multiple benefits that complement your business. Visit tillhill.com to find out more. Tillhill, the forestry professionals guiding farmers to their sustainable future. You're listening to the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast with me, your host, Johan Tasker. In this episode, we're looking at how we can achieve food security and how farmers can balance food production with environmental benefits. Carl Atkin from the Institute for Agricultural Management. This is something that we're going to have to achieve as a whole industry. This is not something that is just about individual farmers, individual producers. I think so. And I think, um, you know, I've always been a big, a big advocate of looking at um, uh, production from a supply chain context, you know, and if we if we roll our minds back, you know, some years now to the sort of um, 80s and 90s, when we had, um, you know, market interventions and the cap through intervention buying stuff, that was always my one big criticism of that policy that it fragmented our supply chains. And we produced a generation of farmers who were technically efficient producers, but frankly had very little idea what happened to their produce when it left the farm gate, you know, with one or two exceptions like, um, you know, some of the vertically integrated non-ruminant sectors. And I think one thing we've achieved over the last couple of decades is we've, we've reconnected supply chains in that there's now much better awareness from a traceability, from a provenance, uh, and indeed from an information flow point of view about how those work. There's still a long way to go. There's still a lot of issues. You know, a lot of tr- supply chain transactions um, as Emily said, are quite short term, they're quite adversarial. You know, we have a, a small number of partnerships that, that, that truly work that everyone likes to talk about. But in reality, they're a relatively small percentage, particularly in the more commoditized sectors, um, uh, you know, like grains and oil seeds. So I think we're moving in the right directions, but it is also ultimately, it's not just about the, the competitiveness and the security of the production. It's about the competitiveness and security of the whole value chain. Phil Jarvis, do you work closely with your suppliers or are you just um, producing as much as you can and shunting it out the out the farm gate and trading it on the commodity markets? I mean, there's no doubt about it. A lot of our produce, uh, you know, we rely on economies of scale and, and, rigid, and low cost of production. But I think there are ways that, 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 that you know, for example, the selection of your varieties, growing for a market, uh, being, you know, um, adding value to it, you know, clean, you know, making sure that it fits the spec that you're asked to produce. So whether it be into the brewing trade or whether it be into biscuit, wheat or milling, there are definite ways that farms uh, can go and we go about uh, supplying, you know, the the marketplace rather than just saying, well, let's just fill the barn up with whatever we can grow the most of. Uh, Emily Norton, I can sort of imagine uh, farmers listening to this thinking, oh, you know, there's loads of stuff coming down the line. It's not just policy. We've got to work more closely with our suppliers. They're going to make more demands of us. How much of that is true? I think it's very true. We did some um, work last year for um, one of our research documents looking at um, sort of sustainability sustainability commitments within the agri-food supply chain. Uh, and it's clear that a huge number of them, you know, particularly where they're regulated businesses or listed businesses, are starting to have to disclose their um, carbon footprint and make these sustainability claims. And for them, um, you know, the technical way of looking at it is they've got sort of the direct emissions from operating their supermarket, 
They've got a huge number of indirect emissions that come from the fact that they are sourcing from farming systems that may not yet be sustainable. So when they do that scope three assessment, they have to start being bothered about how we're producing food. So, you know, suddenly you've got this twin dynamic going on of kind of, you know, environmentalism from the bottom up and food sustainability from the top down. And it is going to be very difficult for farmers to um, retain control of their farming systems within that because those highly concentrated market actors, both in terms of, say, land ownership and the way that those motivations are changing in order to achieve environmental objectives and supply chains in terms of how they're changing and wanting to achieve their environmental objectives. The farmer is front and centre of that. And that's why these movements around, for example, regenerative agriculture are so interesting because the farmer then manages to kind of regain ownership and regain um, uh, their own sort of sense of agency over that transformation and what they're retaining the value of on farm. And what Phil suggested is really true. You know, you've got to be in a position where you're capturing as full a margin as possible over that value piece. So you're not simply... um, Um, at the beck and call of all of those powerful actors. So sort of trying to take control and internalising as many of the opportunities as possible uh, through different different markets and including environmental markets within that really is the way that we are advising as many of our clients as possible to start to build that resilience away from the basic payment scheme. You know, it makes the internal business much more confusing and much more difficult to manage because you've got many more different things going on, but it's the only way that you're not, effectively going to become a slave to the supply chain. Johan, could I just come in there? Because um, it becomes, you talk about more regulation and what's coming down the line, but um, I'll mention it now, but our trade policies don't make it very easy for us to do that. So more regulation, more environmental free, uh, UK farmers, but a seemingly uh, disconnected um, uh, system with, with, with imported food. And it makes it much more difficult for UK farms to carry that cost where seemingly there isn't as much uh, scrutiny. Now, whether that's fact or fiction, it needs to be making sure that actually it's a fair marketplace for UK producers. So uh, I'm sure many others will will make that point at a conference next week, but I think it's worth mentioning now our trade situation does influence this. Carl Atkin, we can't see UK farming in isolation from the rest of the world. There are all of these global influences out there not just trade but weather and war as we've seen in ukraine as well absolutely and um you know we, we're part of the global food system we always have been you know arguably we become a more important part of the global food system in the medium term because you know the, the population growth is in other parts of the world um you know climate change affects other parts of the world more more seriously than it does us so actually the resilience of maritime northwestern Europe as a kind of key global food producing hub arguably becomes more important in the medium term. So I think um, we, we need to bear that we need to bear that in mind. I think um, you know look when we when we started thinking about the conference theme uh, back in the spring, you know, we it was it was pre it was pre the, the war in Ukraine, pre the pre the Black Sea disruption. You know, now now we've had all these political machinations over the last six months about about environmental policy. So you know uh, you know, this has always been a live topic, but heck, haven't the events of the last six or eight months really focused the minds that this is a live topic and that, um, you know, this trade off between food, land management, public goods, other uses of land. So the other one is, um, you know, the, the sort of I'm hoping that uh, Lord Demon will talk a bit about the Climate Change Committee work and, and the projections for energy cropping and conversion of land to forestry. And it strikes me there's a big gap still about where exactly this land is going to be. 
and what's going to which you know sort of food production sector is going to be most impacted what's the impact um, some really basic kind of impact work I think that still needs to be figured out in terms of resilience, Emily Norton, farmers, are, uh, as you've already mentioned, uh, under pressure from both ends of the supply chain, they've also got these sort of global pressures. The weather, uh, as we know, is always there. Where should a farmer start in terms of trying to make their business more resilient? Well, uh, attend as many training conferences as possible, including the lovely conference next week. I mean, this really is the time for self-education uh, and actually you know, realistically, what, what we see um, within uh, or even things like our land market, our long history of studying the land markets, is that when you have a big um, policy uh, change, you get um, a new generation of farmers saying, saying, OK, we're up for that challenge. The, only, the old generation of farmers says, OK, you know, too complicated, too much. Um, and so actually what we really need is for the new generation to step up and say, OK, we get this. We want the challenge. We, we see what we need to do. We understand the importance of meeting all of these expectations and um, sort of move into this space. And I sort of think, you know, is, is there space for slowing this down to make sure that we're bringing um, sort of the more reticent, uh, the, the, the more um, sceptical part of the industry with us? You know, we've got to question that seriously. I think, you know, we all get how serious this is. We all get how serious the climate crisis and um, all of these other crises are. And we need people who are prepared to step up to the challenge. So, hey, look, if I was in charge, <laughs> I think the retirement scheme would be stronger. I think the, the generational change needs to be quicker. And I think we um, it, it, just because it's hard to take on all of these new skills when your mindset has been so ingrained by 50 years of the common agricultural policy. So I think there's there's a big thing there for the people who want to take on the challenge to be given the opportunity to do so. Have you met Sandy, the new generation smart natural capital navigator from Trinity AgTech? Accredited to the highest standards, Sandy combines the most reliable analytics with the latest science and technology. Take control of your farm's natural capital and increase your profit and sustainability. Join farms of all sizes across all sectors using Sandy, the smart natural capital navigator. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might like to continue the conversation by tuning in to the Scottish Red Meat Industries Primary Podcast. It's hosted by QMS. It brings industry updates, best practice, and welcomes experts from around the world to discuss how to promote, support, develop, and protect the Scottish red meat sector. You can download and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Buzzsprout, or listen online via the Quality Meat Scotland website. You're listening to the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast with me, your host, Johan Tasker. In this episode, we're looking at how we can achieve food security and how farmers can balance food production with environmental benefits. Phil Jarvis from Auburnwise, how as farmers can we ensure that we have the right skills to achieve that balance? Well, training and continued professional development, you know, upskilling yourself is really important. But also all the things, the big things we're talking about, the crystal ball we're gazing into, farmers can control what they can control. So if they look at their soil management, their crop management, animal, you know, waste, you know, how they deal with waste, water, energy, how they market, all these things and who they work with, you know, people within their own business or joint venturing, all those things are under their control. 
So getting them as efficient as possible means that actually when policy is decided, your business is in a lean, mean shape to take advantage of that. It's all right in a a farmer's control, those things. Uh, Carl Atkin, are are farmers, in your experience, more willing to to embark on things like joint ventures? Look, I've been in consultancy over 20 years now, and um, the, the whole issue of collaboration, cooperation in our industry, why it works, why it doesn't work, you know, why we're not as good as it as, as other countries in the world is one of these sort of things that, that keeps coming around. I mean, I think fundamentally, I would say yes, although we have started from quite a low base. Um, uh, I guess it depends how you how you define cooperation, because it, it means a whole host of things. Um, uh, but I think, um, you know, what what's driving it? Generational change, I think, is clearly driving it. Um, uh, generally speaking, um, you know, as we're seeing, um, more farmers um, who've been through not only perhaps sort of formal education, but also are embracing CPD, embracing lifelong learning, embracing opportunities to 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 broaden networks to collaborate um, for sure. I also think um, we are a little bit rigid in the way we think about um, cooperation in this country. You know, I always joke. You know, if you go to a uh, go to a land agent, they say, "Here's a farm business tenancy," or "Here's a contract farming agreement." I prepared earlier. You know, we have these very standard, you know, models, and actually, we need to think a bit more creatively. The the thing should be, what are we trying to achieve in this situation? And then let's get a lawyer or a land agent or somebody to draft the agreement that suits us, rather than just taking one off the shelf. So, you know, I'm a passionate advocate of share farming, for example. We don't do very much of it in the UK. It seems a really obvious way for me to try and get new entrants into the industry, to try and allow people to build up, albeit often quite slowly, um, you know, equity in a business over time, allowing people a sort of medium-term exit route. But I think we've got to be more flexible about how we think about cooperation and collaboration and not just pigeonhole it into a series of these are the agreements that we use because they're the ones we've always used. So, so flexibility then. I mean, Emily Norton has, has talked about regen farming. Phil has mentioned the importance of, of the soil to his farming business. Carl, in terms of regen, do we need to be more open-minded when it comes to regenerative agriculture or, or, or is it just simply good farming practice? I always very simply say, I think, you know, probably 60 to 70 percent of Regen Ag is what we call just good old farming, farming husbandry, you know, and, and dare I say, we've rediscovered a lot of things that if we dusted down soil science research from 30, 40, 50 years ago, would be talked about then, right? So we've kind of rediscovered, I think, a lot of things that we've forgotten, you know, and one of the things I say is, you know, to some extent, um, parts of the agriculture industry have become a little bit lazy over the last decade or two. The solution's always been out of a bag or a can rather than thinking about a holistic way to how we integrate, you know, inputs with cultural and biological and, and, and uh, control and, and, and good husbandry. I think regen, so I think regen is, is a concept that nobody would argue with philosophically. Um, my biggest concern about regen is it's everything to everybody, right? And I, I, I sort of am slightly surprised that, you know, some of the more hardline environmental NGOs haven't already, you know, um, thrown the greenwashing accusation harder than they have because the term has been taken and used and, and frankly abused by quite a lot of people who are saying they're regen and, and others would probably think they're not. So I think the critical thing for me in the regen space is we need agreement on a, a broad set of standards 
Um, we probably need some kind of regulatory framework. I know there'll be some farmers who will be, you know, take a deep and painful breath at that, but there probably has got to be some kind of regulatory oversight. And there probably needs to be some kind of audit or assurance process, right? And that may be just building it into existing ones rather than creating new ones. But at the moment, I could just tell you I'm regen just because I've happened to put up one cover crop in between a couple of cereal crops. Hey, I'm a regen farmer. I might, I might be doing nothing else, but I've self-certified myself. And that's got to be a bit of a nonsense, right? Emily Norton, do you want to pick that up? Is Carl right? I, I love disagreeing with Carl and make it a sport. Um, I, I, I think it doesn't matter that, that there's not a single definition. The whole point of regenerative agriculture is that you as an individual farmer decide what's best for your farm, understanding what it can do, uh, what it can naturally produce, and then work with nature in order to create better outcomes. So you know, th- there shouldn't be a standard definition of it. It's sort of the the very anathema of what regenerative agriculture is, which is a soil first, bottom up approach. So that we need a top down regulatory system for it. I completely disagree with. Um, it is, however, I do agree entirely in the farmer's best interest to start developing these systems. And so that's uh, the main confusion is whether it becomes investable or a target at all uh, when it is in the farmer's best interest to be reducing inputs improving soil health improving the diversity and the resilience of the systems that they've got within their farming setup and so um i i I think it's something we all need to embrace whether there's a standard definition of it or whether it's simply doing your farming better uh, it's it's the future we all need to think about phil jarvis what's your thinking well, there's certainly no standard definition, I can tell you that. I mean, there's probably about 40 definitions of it. Uh, well, there's probably as many definitions as there are farmers, if the truth be known. But uh, if you look at it, you usually get the farming system that the marketplace and your government policy dictates. So if you look at where we are now, whether it be the Common Agricultural Policy or whatever's coming through with the Agriculture Act and, and our schemes going forward with ELMS, you will get – so if you want to take farmers on a journey, give them some clear – guidance about the direction you want them to do and make sure the marketplace rewards them from that. Otherwise, farmers are just going to say, well, actually, I'll follow the marketplace first and foremost because your policy is either not supportive enough or it's not clear enough. Uh, and, you know, or, or your definition of what the journey you want farms to on is not clear enough. And I think we're in a, you know, Carl mentioned it earlier on, you know, Elms could be a bit wishy-washy. Well, you know, if you give some clear leadership to it and you give some proper support to it, and you try and get the marketplace to support that, then you'll get farmers coming on board. Farmers are businessmen that will follow the market, but they'll also follow wherever government decides to take them as well. Carl Atkin, we might be in a little bit of a a policy vacuum as far as agriculture is concerned, but in terms of the marketplace, things are pretty clear, especially on the input side. We've we've got rampant ag inflation. The farm input costs have increased by a third over over the past year. Uh, the market seems to be telling us that um, that the solution is no longer to come out of a bag or out of a can. We should be using f- fewer farm inputs because they're simply too expensive. Wow, that's quite a question, Johan. I think you've, you've wrapped quite a few things up in there. Um, uh, just just to come back first, say I'm delighted to find something else I disagree with Emily on because we do agree on most things. So we, we can have a, we'll have an offline debate now about Regen Ag. But um, but back to your question, uh, Johan. I think well, look, there's clearly a number of factors at play here. You know, most most of the macro, right, in terms of um, what's driven what's happened to input prices on the back, on the back of commodities. But I think it is. You're absolutely right. The timing of that's quite interesting because it's probably made us think a little bit more carefully um, about input use. Um, uh, I guess, you know, the number number of factors at play here, economics is one, regulation is another, 
The other one is simply the diminishing pipeline of traditional chemical solutions that we have now, again, driven through cost of development, through particularly for, for pesticides, through loss of active ingredients, um, you know, through through the re-registration process. So um, I think we've got to all become more targeted and about how we use inputs. Um, the nice thing about the regen system, though, where I do agree with Emily, the flexibility is, you know, it's not organic, clearly. Um, it's saying use inputs appropriately. Uh, in conjunction with a whole um, holistic set of tools that we have in the toolbox. Um, I guess where I do slightly disagree with Emily still is, is I do think that needs a bit of control around that because, again, the, the danger is, you know, I, I could be the most intensively pesticide-using farmer in the UK, but if I tell everyone I'm regen, there's nobody to challenge me on that. And my biggest worry is that the word gets devalued. The word gets devalued in the eyes of the general consumer because ultimately I think you know, over a quite sh short period of time, regen will become the baseline standard. I know there's a lot of chit chat about, is there a regen premium? Is it going to add differentiation in the marketplace? My honest answer is there may be at best a short term, um, but I think that could go. And the, the, the example I always use with that is is is, is forestry and, and, and the, um, the, the sustainable um, sustainability criteria there. You know, there was a short-term premium, um, but quite quickly that became the baseline standards, um, and, and everybody had to um, had to be producing to that standard. With the Environment Act's biodiversity net gain provision coming into effect in autumn 2023, Stratton Parker is here to help. We offer comprehensive and joined-up multidisciplinary advice. And our advisors work together with both landowners and developers to identify off-site biodiversity net gain sites, broker agreements and advise on the value of biodiversity credits. If you're interested in finding out whether your land can offer net gain or you would like wider professional advice, visit rural.strattonparker.com. Introducing KW Feedcast our fortnightly podcast that covers all you need to know about the raw material markets and topical product information. Brought to you by KW Feeds, KW Feedcast ensures you have up-to-date knowledge to help you make better informed feed buying decisions. KW Feedcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Can you afford not to listen? You're listening to the Farmers Weekly Transition Podcast with me, your host, Johan Tasker. In this episode, we're looking at how we can achieve food security and how farmers can balance food production with environmental benefits. Emily Norton from Savills, regenerative agriculture is all the rage in some quarters at the moment. Not everybody's a fan though, but do you see regen ag becoming a baseline standard, something that farmers are going to simply be expected to do? as we strive to achieve this balance between food production and the environment? Well, what's going to be expected, what government needs to do, and I think this comes back to the question of leadership, what we don't have at the moment is a really clear vision of how we align these competing challenges and how we transition our businesses to something that meets the future expectation. To mention back to the Tenancy Working Group, you know, one of the problems is that the definition of agriculture sort of came after 1947. So, you know, we're thinking about the way of using land in, in a way that's just not suited to what we now understand to be the downsides of those heavily production based um, intensive agricultural systems. So um, I, I'm not sure that regenerative agriculture will be nailed down and will be the standard. Um, but 
a definition of agriculture which balances environmental and agricultural and social well-being within our farming systems, I think will become the standard. It's it's broader um, and, and it's much more modern, <laughs> much more fit for the future. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be um, as... Um, as we perceive regenerative agriculture to be at the moment in these very sort of complex systems, it will just be doing what we do better. Phil Jarvis? Yeah, I suppose where regenerative agri, you know, if you can still sustain yields, you can still reduce your inputs, your efficiency of your business, and therefore your gross margin and ultimately your profit get better, then regenerative agriculture will become the norm. And that's why upskilling yourself to try and do that is, is good. Also, if governments tend to support that system and show clear direction, people will do it. However, uh, if it's aspirational to improve the environment with regenerative agriculture, it's great, but it's undermined if you just import food that just doesn't have any IPM with it, doesn't have any uh, checks and balances. And I think that's where you've got to be really careful or the government has to. But you're confident in terms of urban wise that you are getting things right. You are managing to balance food security and uh, and environmental security, or at least you are able uh, in your own business to balance food production and the environment. Well, well, we've invested in in people into our business as well to make that balance. You know, we've we've started uh, uh, an environmental division as well. So, and our land is suitable for both for food production and environment, and that's the journey we're on. Like many other farmers. Uh, we're on that journey and and we'll be we'll we'll be led by private we'll be led by our own initiative and our own incentives as well but we're looking for leadership as well uh from government and when that comes we'll we'll adopt whatever uh, direction or signpost is put in front of us carl atkin this is something that uh, other farmers can do as well family farms as well as bigger larger farm businesses and estates absolutely i don't i don't see there's any particular um, scale barrier here at all in terms of you know picking up what, what Phil said you know the you know every every farm has bits of land that may suit you know agroenvironmental scheme may suit some agroforestry you know the 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 we haven't really talked for example about the, for example the voluntary soil carbon market yet but you know the the the, the early entrants into that scheme you know have um, uh, products available that, that suit quite small farmers um, as well as large farmers um, things like biodiversity net gain. Um, you can smell sell relatively small blocks of VNG. Um, so this, we don't have to be talking, you know, hundreds of hectares here. We don't even need to talk about tens of hectares. You know, this this can be done on a on a scale much smaller than that, and can still leave, you know, the business um, predominantly a traditional farm in the eyes of the farmer. In terms of probably eighty plus percent of his land is still being used to produce um, food. Emily Norton, are you going to disagree with Carl on that, or is that something that you that, that you're only too pleased to agree with? I, I think um, what I was going to point out was that, uh, as much as there's confusion around the definition of regenerative agriculture, there is also um, uh, confusion over the definition of food. Um, and I think that this is um, the real future that we have to face into. Um, and the, the message is out there saying that what we currently see to be our food our food system. Is, is pretty broken and is, is pretty much specialised in making a large proportion of the population poorly. Um, and so rethinking that, you know, the, the, the strongest critics of our industry are saying we need a complete rethink of the food system. Um, and I do challenge some of my fellow uh, Norfolk farmers on this particular point as to how much food they are actually producing when a lot of it is commodity production 
that might be a feed product for something else that is actually non-essential for our core health and our core diets, we might need to rethink the entire balance of, of where our farming systems are going to. So I just wanted to put that additional challenge out there. that it's, it's not beyond the wit of the next government or the government beyond it to start to say we need completely different targets for food, let alone targets for the environment. You know, that's what the advocates are calling for. Different targets for food then, as well as different targets for the environment. Well, that's about it from this episode of the Farmers Weekly Transition Agriculture Podcast with me, your host, Johan Tasker. I'd like to thank our three special guests for the time they've spent with us. Carl Atkin, Chairman of the Institute of Agricultural Management, Emily Norton, Head of Rural Research at Savills, and Phil Jarvis, Chairman of Farming and the Environment at Wise Farming Limited. We'll have another episode of the Farmers Weekly Transition Agriculture podcast soon. But in the meantime, please do subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. It makes us easier to find and it helps spread the word. And please do look at the Transition Agriculture section of the Farmers Weekly website. That's at fwi.co.uk forward slash transition. If you'd like to have your say, we'd love to hear from you. Simply email us at podcast at fwi.co.uk. But for now, from me, Johan Tasker, thank you for listening. And until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>